Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I might you to open your copy of God's Word. And we're again in Luke chapter 7, as we were last week. We're studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. Title of today's message is Caring for the Widows. Last week we uh, were introduced to the faithful centurion who pleaded with Jesus to heal his servant, which of course Jesus did, without even having to see the servant. This next section of verses, though, verses 11 through 17, that I'm about to read, tells the story of an even greater miracle which took place in a little village called Nain. It is the story of Jesus giving life to a dead son of a widow woman from that city. Let's read the text, Luke 7, 11. Soon afterwards he went to a city, that soon afterwards he healed the centurion's servant. He went to a city called Nain and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now first let's do a little historical background. When he says soon afterwards, this is the way that uh, Luke as a historian moves the action forward. He's not specific. Just after chronologically he had healed the centurion. Remember that Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He would travel from village to village. His home base was Capernaum. But he would travel to, to many of the villages there in Galilee and then later down to Judea. And everywhere he went it was sort of a snowball effect. People would hear about what he did in the last village And they'd come out to hear Jesus teach and perform miracles. And when he would leave there and go to the next village, some of them would travel with him. Next thing you know, he's got hundreds. And at one point, at least 5,000 people were traveling everywhere that he went. Now, Jesus as God knew their hearts. And he knew that not nearly all of them were genuine converts. Many of them just wanted to come out for a show. People haven't changed all that much today. This city called Nain, where he performed this miracle, means green pastures. That little village is still there in Israel today. And it has a gate leading up from the plain. You can see it from a great distance. And Jesus saw this funeral procession coming out of the gate of the entrance to the city over to the east side of the city where they had a burial area. And you remember that in those days they did not bury underground as we do. They uh, carved caves out of the rock or found natural caves and that's where they would have their ancestral burial grounds. And so here's this procession. A man who was the only son of a widow woman had passed away. And the, the funeral customs in those days are very different than in the Western world as you know. Uh, first and foremost when a person passed away it was required that they would be buried the day they died. That's far from the case today as you know but it was uh, a matter of uh, some 
importance in those days because they didn't have the preservation tools that we have today. And also because they believed it showed disrespect for the deceased if they were not buried immediately. And so what would happen is that when a person died, uh, particularly suddenly, those who loved him would tear their clothes, rend their clothes as a sign of grief. And then the professional mourners would be called in. There was a whole um, group of people that what they did is they went from funeral to funeral and they were good at it. They're called keeners. And then after the keeners came, they would hire musicians, usually pipers, who would lead the procession through the town, through the gates into the burial area. And so Jesus heard and saw from a great distance on the plain likely as he approached the city what was going on and it grabbed his attention. And he was moved with sadness. Now Jesus is a sympathetic Savior, isn't he? Jesus knows that death was the result of sin's entrance into the world. Not specifically the sin of that individual who died, but through our first parents, Adam, sin entered the world and therefore sin's curse, which is death. And we see the effects of sin's curse all around us today in the world. And that is never more true than when we sit in a funeral service. We should always be mindful of our own mortality in those days and the ultimate cause of sin, which, uh, death, which is sin. And so this funeral, though, was particularly sad because the details are given by Luke that it was the son, the only son of a widow woman, and that uh, had all sorts of societal implications in those days. And don't pass over this too qu quickly. It's always a tragedy when someone loses a child. I have uh, talked with many of you who have lost children, some of them in, when they're young and some when they're older or mature, but it's always a tragedy when, when you bury a child. Dr. Leroy Patterson, who was uh, the pastor who preceded me here, was my mentor, and he lost his first wife to cancer, and then he lost an adult daughter to cancer, and he often talked to me about it, and he said, there's no grief like losing a child. And some of you have experienced that. And so this was the plight of this poor woman. But not only did she lose her companion, the only tie to her marriage, because obviously as a widow her husband had already died, she lost protection and economic security. They did not have social security in those days. And so it was the obligation of the oldest son to care for his mother when she became a widow. And if you did not have a son, there was no uh, safety net for you. And so this was particularly tragic. Let me just say a word about that. You know, statistically, that women live longer than men. Did you know that there are four times as many widow women in the United States than widower men? There's a combination of factors. Women tend to live longer, but also men tend to marry women a little younger than them. And so when, when a husband dies, often that woman is left a widow for sometimes decades. And Jesus had compassion on widows. In fact, the scripture says he was moved with compassion when he saw this funeral possession. Remember the Greek word here has to do with the insides. He was moved physically in his stomach. Now it's one thing as we've said to have compassion. That's sympathy. You feel what that other person feels. But kindness is putting that sympathy into action. I can't ever remember anywhere in the scripture where Jesus is said to have felt compassion that he didn't take action on that. And so he feels compassion, he does something about it. Now what does he do? Well two things. One, he shows compassion with his words. He says to the woman, do not weep. Now I don't advise you to use that quotation at funerals. 
I sometimes get frustrated with people who go to the funeral parlor and, and they'll say to the widow, well, don't cry. He's in heaven. Look, there's nothing wrong with crying. It's not a sin. We know that because what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept and he wept at a graveside. Paul says we weep, but we do not weep as those who have no hope. See, when we tell someone don't cry, we don't have any ability to change the situation. Jesus did. He said, do not weep. I'm about to change this situation. And so not only did he comfort her with his words, but then, of course, with his actions. Look at verse 14. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Three verbs stick out in, in those couple of verses. Number one, he touched. He touched the coffin. Your translation may say funeral beer. It's the same thing. It's just a cot made out of wood that they would carry the body on to the graveside after they had washed it ceremonially, anointed it, and wrapped it in cloths. And, and to say that Jesus touched the coffin and they stopped says a lot about that culture. It was a huge taboo in that culture to touch a coffin or anything to do with a dead body. And, and so everyone was stopping to see what's going on here. But Jesus had the power over sin. And so it was appropriate for him to touch the coffin. And he said, really he commanded, that's the second verb, he commanded this young man to sit up. And he sat up and he spoke. Jesus has power over death. And then the third verb is he gave him back to his mother. That is, he restored what had been broken. God is a God in the restoration business. And the whole book of Revelation, in summary, is about God, through Christ, restoring and making right what was broken because of sin's entrance into the world. And one of the things that's going to make heaven heaven is there's not going to be any death or dying. Now, he restored this young man back to his, his mother. What a marvelous miracle this is. Now, it's not the only time recorded in the New Testament that Jesus raised the dead. It is the first time. The other time is uh, Jairus' daughter, a little girl that he raised from the dead. And the most famous, of course, his friend Lazarus in the village of Bethany. But there are others, believe it or not, in the New Testament, other people other than Jesus who God used to raise the dead one of those that was raised from the dead was a young man named Eutychus. Eutychus was the Baptist who fell asleep in church and fell out the second story window and broke his neck. And Paul rushed down and graciously prayed over him and the Lord restored his life. The other was a dear woman in the city of Joppa as recorded in the book of Acts. Dorcas called Tabitha. And when Peter heard that she had passed, he came immediately and went up to her room and prayed over her and said, Tabitha, arise. And the Lord brought her back to life. Now, here, here's some things that are true about uh, Eutychus and Dorcas and Lazarus and Jairus and this young man here in Luke 7. Their resurrection was temporary. We know that because they're not around today. They died again. There's coming a day when all in Christ who have passed away are going to come forth at the resurrection. This time never to die again. And so that resurrection is obviously superior to this one. But this one is something that's a miracle as well. Now what was the result of this great miracle? Look at verse 16. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God. By the way, you'd have been afraid too. 
and me if a dead man stood up on his way to the graveside. They began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited our people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. Fear and praise are proper responses to God's manifest presence and power. Do you remember Jesus and the disciples at night were making their way by boat across the Sea of Galilee, and a tempest, a storm arose, and they thought they would surely die. They woke up Jesus, who was taking a nap, and said, Lord, don't you care that we're all going to die? Jesus spoke to the tempest and to the waves and said, Peace, be still. And instantaneously, the Sea of Galilee became calm. And the scripture indicates those disciples were more afraid of God in their boat than they were the waves in the sea. That is the proper response to God's manifest presence. I think one of the great problems in the evangelical church today is that we've become too familiar with deity. What I mean by that, we seem to have lost our reverence and holy fear of God. Not the case with the great men of the Bible who came face to face up close with the Lord, Abraham and Job and Isaiah and Moses and Paul. Every time we see an up-close encounter with deity, these men show fear and reverence and respect. We asked the question last week, what could we learn from the centurion? And the answer was how to think rightly in difficult days. Well, let's ask a similar question of this story, the story of the widow's son. What can we learn? Well, the answer is my thesis statement today. Jesus, as God in the flesh, is sympathetic and kind to all. Would you agree with that? Jesus is sympathetic and kind to all, comma, but it is obvious that God has special care for widows. And that's what I want to spend the balance of our time discussing with you today, God's care for widows. And I want to give you four talking points. Number one is, God's care for widows is consistent. And what I mean by that is we see it throughout both Testaments of the Bible. There is a misunderstanding, if not a heresy out there, that says the God of the Old Testament is fundamentally different from the God of the New Testament. See, the God of the Old Testament people think is harsh and cruel and mean, and the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is kind and compassionate. Don't you believe that? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's kind and compassionate throughout the Bible. He is consistent, and His care for widows is consistent. In the Old Testament, there were some resurrections as well. One of them by Elijah, the great prophet, who raised again the son of a widow, the widow of Zarephath, from the dead. And then his uh, compatriot, Elisha, who prayed for a double blessing of God's favor on him, was used to raise a widow's son, the Shunammite woman, and then after Elisha died and his bones had decomposed, they were going to put another body in his tomb. And when that body, who had just died, touched the old bones of Elisha, this man sprang back to life. And so literally, God gave him a double portion. He raised twice as many from the dead as Elisha. And now we have the third occasion of, of this. Jesus, who's called a great prophet, that is in the line of Elijah and Elisha, Raising the dead. There's a difference though. Elisha and Elisha, Elisha and Elijah raised the dead through the power of prayer. Jesus raised the dead because he's God. And so there is a difference. But listen to God's care for widows. Deuteronomy 27 19, God says, Cursed 
be anyone who perverts the justice do sojourners, fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. He says we need to all agree on this. That if someone mistreats a widow woman, we ought to all be angry. Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, I could quote dozens of verses like that from the Bible. Some in the old and some in the new. God's care for widows is consistent. Secondly, God's care for widows is compassionate. He's not this disinterested deity. He's a sympathetic Savior. Now, practically speaking, in those days and today, it's often the husband who handled the finances. Women rarely worked outside of the home in those days. And so the husband was responsible for, for making the living, and he handled the finances. And sometimes they never talked about finances. And, and that happens, I can't tell you how many times, many, that I have sat in the living room with a woman who's newly widowed, and she doesn't know if she has a dollar or a million, because she and the husband never talked about those things. Brother Ted, our senior adult minister, is putting together a conference in March dealing with planning for end-of-life issues. Now, we can ignore it and pretend it's not going to happen, but the truth is, the Bible says it's important to every man wants to die. And men, you have a responsibility to care for your family, your wife, and your children. The Bible says if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And it's my conviction that one of the ways you take care of your wife and your children is to prepare them for your death. And we're going to help you do that. Now, widows were in that day and are today some of the most vulnerable members of society. Matthew 24, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, he said, because they devour widows' houses. Now, what that means is these Pharisees would, would put on the, the robes of of, of trying to show that they were loyal to, to the Lord, that they were godly people. And uh, they would go to these widows who had lost their husbands and say to them, hey, now I know you got a lot on your mind. Let me handle your finances. And then what would happen is they would end up getting these widows to sign over their property to them. And they were devouring these widow houses. Friends, people have not changed. There are unscrupulous businesswomen men today who read the paper, particularly obituaries, looking for widows that they can prey upon. We had a dear woman in our church, lived to be nearly 100 years old, who was widowed for several decades. Right after her husband passed away, one of these unscrupulous businessmen swindled her out of every penny. And she lived on about $800 a month for the rest of her life. Now there is such a thing as righteous indignation, holy anger. And God's people ought to be righteously indignant over things like that because God certainly is. Psalm 68.5, He is the father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God says He protects widows. But if you know anything about God, oftentimes He uses people to be the means through which He takes care of things. And today, that's primarily through the local church. So that leads me to my third point. God's care for widows is commanded. Commanded. Isaiah 1.17 in the Old Testament, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The same reason we speak for the unborn in this church 
is the same reason we ought to speak for widows. It's because they're the most vulnerable and voiceless in society. You say, well, Pastor, you're quoting a lot of Old Testament. Well, there's a large section of Scripture in the New Testament that deals with this issue as well. Turn with me, if you will. 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, one of Paul's epistles. He's writing a letter to young Pastor Timothy, who's uh, the new pastor at Ephesians Baptist Church. And he's teaching him how to deal with different demographics within the church. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And then he spends several verses on how to treat widows. This is what he says. Verse 3, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. Let's stop right there. The primary way that God has instructed us, Christians, to take care of aging parents, particularly widow women, is through adult children. Had a man that stopped in my office Thursday off the street, wanted our church to pay his house payment. And my first question to him is, do you have adult children? He said, yes. And he named them all. And I said, go ask them. Because it is the biblical response for adult children to help their parents. Now, if they don't have children or they're unavailable, then it becomes the church's responsibility. But the first level is the children. Now, the Bible says, again, man doesn't take care of his family's worse than an unbeliever. Now, this includes aging parents. And I'll tell you how this plays out. Sorry to say I'm going to preach to you, but I hopefully do that every week. <laughs> Here, here's how I've seen it play out. We, we have 11 nursing homes we minister to here. And I've spent many hours there and got to know many of these people. And, and I'll say, do your children come to visit you? And they'll kind of look down and say, well, they used to. When I first came in, they, they came daily, and then it became on Saturday afternoon, and then it became once a month on Sunday afternoon, and then it became Christmas and Easter, and, and now they don't come at all. That, that is more typical than you know. And I'll talk to some of these adult children, and I say, why don't, why don't you come visit your parents? And they'll say, you know, I just can't stand to see Mama like that. Can't seem to see Daddy in that condition. You know, I, I'm not always very tactful. And I've often said, you know what, I don't expect they enjoyed changing your diaper when you were little. But they did it. In fact, all of us who made it to adulthood did so because our parents invested heavily in us. Through feeding us and clothing us and taking care of us. And now he says, look what he says, make some return to your parents. It's time now to return that. That's God's plan. And then he goes on to talk about who a, a widow is and describing her. But then in verse 9 he says this, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. She's brought up children if she's shown hospitality to strangers. She's washed the saints' feet if she's assisted those in distress. And if she has devoted herself to every good work. I take from that, it's not the church's responsibility to take care of, of all the social needs of the community, but we're first to do that to our own. And then beyond that as we can. But he says that she must be a widow indeed. Now, why would the Bible spend so much time talking about the care of widows? I think it's because God loves widow women. 
He has a special concern and care for them. And it's commanded that we do the same. Now, fourthly and finally, God's care for widows is Christian. If, if you want to, to be Christ-like, there's nothing you can do to be more Christ-like than care for a widow woman. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. You remember in the early days of the church, after the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, Scripture says that the Lord was adding daily to the church such as were being saved. And many of these were widow women. And as the church grew, it became a logistical problem. How do we care for so many women? And so God led the apostles to set aside some men to help with that. Verse 1, chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer to the ministry of the Word. And so the way God has instituted the church is that there are pastors, and in that day apostles, who were primarily the teachers. And then others came along and were helpers who we call deacons. And these deacons primarily ministered to the needs of the widows. James 1.27 is the theme verse for our adoption fostering ministry. It's also our theme verse, I think, for our widow ministry, and it's this. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. See, the Pharisees thought that how to be religious was to put on the proper robes, say long, eloquent prayers, make a big deal about it when you gave a lot of money away, draw attention to yourself. And Jesus called them blind leaders of the blind. And He said, the one who is given the most is that poor little widow woman who gave the two mites. And then He said through His brother James, here's what real religion looks like, pure and undefiled. It's not hypocritical, it's not fake. It's when you visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, why do you think he would say something like that? There's a lot of things we can do in the name of God other than visit orphans and widows. I think it's because in a lot of the ministries that we do, there's something in it for us. That our motives aren't necessarily pure. I, I'm going to do this because people will tell me I'm great. Or, or I'm going to do this because it scratches an itch that I have. But when you visit orphans and widows, the implication is that they don't have any financial resources. That's why they're in distress. And it's not something that's going to get your, your name. It's something you do privately. And only between you and the Lord. And, and the blessing comes to you by being a servant. And I think that's why the Lord has blessed our church in large measures. Because we have determined for many years to care for this group of people. The widows. Those in the nursing homes. Now the orphans and foster children as, as Brother Tony has led us. And this is true Christianity. True, true Christianity is not building monuments to our ego. True Christianity, pure and undefiled, is visiting the orphan and widow in their time of distress. And, and, and not neglecting personal holiness and keeping oneself unstained by the world. Now how do we 
hope to accomplish that here. It may surprise you to know that as of Friday, we have 127 widow women in our church. We keep a list just like they did in the first century. And every one of these widow women, as soon as it's practicable, are assigned a deacon. And I will tell you, we have many more widows than we have deacons. Which means that many of our deacons have multiple widows that they care for and, and, and look after. And so, uh, I come to you for a couple of reasons. One is, you don't have to be a deacon to care for widows. Don't hear me saying that. If you know of a widow woman and your sphere of influence, love on her. Call her, check on her, write her notes. Invite her to your house for dinner. Most of us take those kind of social encounters for granted. Sometimes we even are overwhelmed by too many. But that's not the case for most of our, many of them are lonely and don't see other people very much. And so it would be a thrill for them to get an invitation to come to dinner at your house. Go pick them up and take them back home. But uh, our deacons are responsible primarily for the care of our widows. And we need some more deacons. I'll just tell you up front. It's been several years since we've elected a new deacon. It's high time that we did. And so the month of February, we're going to set aside for deacon nominations. Next Sunday, I'm going to tell you how to do that. But know that's coming. Start thinking now about men in our church who meet the biblical qualifications for deacons that are laid down in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Go home and read that. And then ask the Lord to put some man on your heart that you can nominate. We particularly need some, some younger men. A lot of our deacons are like me. They're getting a little older and uh, they need some help. And so you younger men, when you're asked, that's an honor. But it's not an honorary position. It's not a title. It's a working thing. We need you to come alongside us and, and help in this ministry and, and, and others like it. So let, let's review before we take uh, of the Lord's Supper. We know that God is consistent in His care for widows. He's always loved them, always will. Secondly, He's compassionate for widows and wants us to be so. He commands us to speak for the widow and minister to the widows. And then it is our great joy to do that because we know that uh, it's the most Christian thing that we could possibly do. Will you join me in praying that God would show us through His wisdom how to best care for the widows of our church. Let's pray now to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, what a practical word it is today. We have uh, 127 women in our church who need our prayers and need our attention. And Lord, we thank You for each of them. So many of them, Father, have served faithfully. They've been Sunday school teachers. They've rocked babies. They've given faithfully of their finances. And now, Lord, it's our time to return some of that. Give us wisdom. Help us to see it's not the government's job, Lord, to do all of that, but it's ours. Father, we would uh, pray now that uh, as we're about to take the Lord's Supper, again, you'd search our hearts. Father, we want to do this in a, in a way that pleases you. So, Lord, as we think about what it means, help us, Lord, to meditate upon the cross and upon the goodness of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.